Hello and welcome to Chatty AF, the anime feminist podcast, and our third and final episode of the Pelamaji Madoka Magica rewatch along, focusing on the the film Rebellion. My name is Vry Kaiser. I'm a contributor and content editor at Anime Feminist. You can find me on the Twitters at Writer Vry, where I post my freelance stuff, or at Trash Pod, a podcast I co-host talking about uh, obs- weird and trashy media and queer stuff. Uh, I am Alex. I'm a contributions editor here at Anifem. Uh, in my daytime life, I'm a research student studying queer fiction. Uh, and by the time this episode goes live, I am probably either just about to submit my PhD or have just submitted my PhD. So follow me on Twitter at the Aficionado to see how much I'm screaming. Oh, that congrats! Oh, clap, clap, clap! Congrats! Hey, y'all! It's your girl Mercedes, <laughs> and um, I am also a con uh, contributing editor here at Anime Feminist and. In my daytime life, I am a localization editor, proofreader in QA, as well as a freelance journalist who is really into Super Cub. That's, that's all I'm into. Yeah. Super Cub. Number one Super Cub stan. Someone has God. to be. I Super love it. Super Cub and Idly Pride. That's my personality. <laughs> <laughs> and also being really angry at this movie. Very different from where we're at. That's also my personality. <laughs> yeah. y'all knew this was coming so we are going to put aside the ending and do all the other things first which before so before we get into the film proper um alex you mentioned off mic that you saw this in a theater and i very much want you to tell me what that was oh yes so this was actually very interesting to look back on because in our first episode of course we talked about how like this anime came out kind of a time where like you know the fandom landscape was sort of shifting and looking back on the movie release is a really interesting little time capsule of how much anime distribution has changed see i remember this this came out this was an event it was only uh, screening for one session, I think, maybe two, but I think it was just one that you had to book in for. We had to go to the uh, the fancy art house cinema in the city, the one that shows all the foreign films. Um, but it was really fun, actually, because they had posters they were giving out um, if you had booked tickets. They might have even had, because this was distributed by Madman Entertainment, who is a fantastic company based here in Australia, um, who also run Anime Lab, or at least they did before it got folded into Funimation. Um, basically, yeah, if you have any Australian anime fan, Madman has had a big part in their journey because they are the ones getting us the obscure DVDs and the translations and the movie releases. Um, and so this was a really cool event put together by them where they were like, yeah, come on, Madoka fans, come and you know have a special event and see this great continuation of the series you love so much. It was very, very exciting and of course, now that's really interesting to contrast to, you know, the Demon Slayer movie being absolutely everywhere and breaking worldwide box office records and, you know, every seemingly obscure spin-off of a spin-off series is is getting, you know, uh, their movie is getting a wide release and I don't even have to go to the art house cinema. I can just go to the local Hoyts. It's a very... Yeah, it really threw into sharp relief sort of how the landscape has changed and kind of the mainstreaming of anime it is very intriguing yeah that, that reminds me of when i uh drove four hours to see tiger and bunny the rising in an alley <laughs> yeah. i mean but like absolutely worth it for some thai bunny like that, that movie sure is incomplete <laughs> I, but it, it, is, it is fascinating because like revisiting madoka rebellion in a year where like first of all there was the announcement by i believe it was katakawa who, who were like we're gonna make all of the anime so much anime more anime than you can handle it's interesting living in a time where like there's almost um dare i say too much anime considering like back in 2013 i would still say like anime was pretty niche it was gathering steam like Certainly nowadays you can, Demon Slayer is so well known. I mean, it's no longer, anime and manga are no longer the niche, like your, you know, backroom anime club at your high school or college thing, but very much so is in that space. And this movie also came out at, I would say one of Tumblr's peaks, which is how I engaged with it. 
um, (laughs) (laughs) which yeah, that 20, like 29 to 2013 Tumblr and then 2014 to up until the porn ban is definitely two different eras of Tumblr. And we'll never get it back. And I'm okay with that. (laughs) But that is interesting that you saw it in a theater because I definitely, uh, full transparency, saw it, it, saw it illegally in anime club. On somebody, somebody had burnt the fan sub onto a DVD so it felt authentic. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got to appreciate that uh, dedication to authenticity. Um, in any case, I saw this movie in the cinema, and I have not actually seen it since until I rewatched it now in the year of our Lord twenty twenty one. So this was a very interesting experience. I had a much bigger gap, and I was kind of like, well, okay. I had some strong feelings about it back in the day, but I'll go in with an open mind. (laughs) Yeah, you know, okay, so here's the thing. I know this movie is somewhat polarizing, but I don't think it's too much of a controversial statement to say that I actually really liked most of this film. This is actually a perfectly fun, delightful, very interesting series continuation with 20 minutes of a weird little sequel hook stuck to the end with craft glue. I mean, like, but I think this movie slaps. <laughs> like I'm a I'm a side with you. This movie slaps. It It's I, good. I really enjoyed it. I was kind of surprised, pleasantly surprised. Right, was this your first rewatch since 2013 as well? Have you seen this since then? Yeah, like I kind of so I kind of osmosed the movie back around when it came out. Um I think I watched a very bad fan sub and then walked away super mad. Um and then yeah, so this is the first time I've really thought much about anything but those last 20 minutes since then. And I will agree that the first 100 minutes of this 120-minute movie are quite quite enjoyable and, like, thematically sound. I actually want to hit everyone at home with some technical details that I think will extremely situate the discussion we're about to have. So the series comes out in 2011, as we discussed last time. There are two recap films released in October of 2012, and then this movie comes out October 2013, and it makes so much fucking money, uh, 2.08 billion yen, and that's just at the Japanese what? box office. That is Excuse not me, the worldwide what? take. Yo, that's uh-huh. some cash it money, It made a Monica. lot of money. <laughs> wow. <laughs> there, there, There is a three volume manga adaptation that is still in print digitally by i think uh it's, it is by, by it Yen is by Press, Press. katakawa yeah. so but i did not read it because i wasn't going to spend 20 bucks <laughs> to get the to, to get a, a tie-in manga i'm gonna do an omnibus <laughs> of it though because that's what they've been doing with all of the madoka series manga so like it'll be out of print i mean it'll be back in print in a different form That'll be interesting. I might give it a gander once it does that. So, 2013 makes a fuckload of money and then nothing. And you know, there is the map there's all of the spin-off mangas, there's Magia Record. The franchise is motoring along making all of the monies. Uh people like me are pissed off at that ending that is a blatant sequel hook like you mentioned and then it doesn't do anything with that. And then on April 25th of 2021, they announce uh, Walpurgis no Kaiten, uh, loosely Walpurgis' rotation, I think, which is the sequel to... Yeah, because I think I want to say that, like, the official, like, sequel title is, like, The Turning of Walpurgis Notch. I'm not really sure. Don't call me on that, because, like... My, I don't, I don't know if I've actually That's, seen the new title, but I feel like I saw that put out that it was like. That sounds like a better, more uh, professional translation than me plugging it yeah. into Google. But translation I, 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 I'm, I'm genuinely not sure what the new title is gonna be. Um, rebellion, rebellion sequel. That's good enough for now. <laughs> Most importantly, I think no one can quite predict what the story is going to be. Um, Yeah. So here's the thing. Urobuchi, when the sequel was announced, mentioned on his Twitter that he wrote this script for the sequel before he went off to work on Thunderbolt Fantasy, which is his 
puppet Wuxia show where he seems much happier and more well-adjusted now. Frankly, that show is fun. But also relevant to this conversation is that he started working on Thunderbolt Fantasy in 2015, which means that this sequel has just been sitting on somebody's desk for six years. That seems, if nothing else, like a very odd marketing decision. Like, I can only assume with no insider knowledge that, I don't know, a memo slid across the desk that they were like, you know what's selling really well? Mobile games. And I said, okay, we'll just we'll set this aside. We'll put a pin in this, you know, the movie. We left a massive cliffhanger on. Uh, it'll be fine. We'll come back to it. I, I don't know. That's all I can think that may have happened. That can bite my entire butt. That makes me so mad. It just there is a lengthy interview in the Blu-ray book of um, of the Rebellion Blu-ray, which um, will be relevant for us to talk about, I think. Uh, but before before I mention those quotes, I believe in the compliment sandwich theory. So let's talk about that first hundred minutes uh, for for a little while. They are chef's kiss. They are so good. They feel like the most beautiful scenic ballet. You can feel the movements. There's so much sapphic romance. It's so good. I do see in your notes that you wrote Thigh Sakuga, which has me on the ground. Right. <laughs> I'm right, and I should say it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. No, the, the the it's good. It's really good. It's kind of everything you really wanted from the series when you thought Monica was going to be a magical girl in like episode 2. Well, I don't love the thigh sakaga. I Oh no, it I It feels don't creepy in a way that undermines the stuff yeah, that comes yeah, later. Yeah, let's make that clear. I'm not here for thigh sakaga. Like no, no, I, I, I <laughs> we all felt uncomfortable, I'm going to assume. <laughs> I know what you meant, but I well, wanted to clarify it for, like, for the this audience. It's a very fan service yeah. movie. Both fan service in the sense of, you know, the, the traditional way we usually use it in terms of like, oh, the camera is on the thigh or Mammy's bust as she walks into a room, things like that. But also I'm like, yes, this is, a, I am a fan and this that. is a service to me because I'm, it's very fanficy. And I don't mean that detrimentally. It's very much like it has a fun what if energy that really feels like it comes from the mind and the heart of a lot of fans who were like, no, well, like, you know, what if we could see this as a more traditional tropy magical girl show? What if we could explore these characters in different contexts? It's, it's kind of fun that way. Oh my God. This is this is absolutely from Urobuchi's <laughs> secret archive of our own account. <laughs> because it, it does, it has this kind of grandness of like, like a timeline AU mashed up with like a AU like hyper magical because it's just magic everywhere, everywhere. And it's so cool and it's so good. And <laughs> Thysakaga aside, is really beautiful and just it feels like you're watching a ballet it does it feels like they have that i'm like okay you guys made the most of that big cinema budget didn't you it's just like the dancing transformation scenes are so cool and just yeah it's a lot of fun it's just fun until it has so much flavor too They have so much flavor in those transformation scenes because like i don't think in the anime we ever get like a proper transformation sequence that's like fully fleshed out and like you have mommy who kind of moves like a gymnast and you've got sayaka who like break dances Mm -hmm. (laughs) and also throws her soul gym which i don't know if y'all caught that but that made me gasp and pause because i was like wow that's like she she does the thing where she runs like she sprints towards her own body and like crashes through and becomes her magical girl self i was like oh yes the visual symbolism (laughs) i will ding kyoko because hers has a weird scare quotes arabian vibe to it and i was like oh that's that don't feel good that don't (laughs) feel that don't feel Uh, right my favorite my favorite part of the dance sequence, I don't know if you guys picked up on this, but there is a bit where Mammy is Mummy is spinning. Sorry, forgive my broad Australian trend, um, accent coming into the Japanese names. It's, it's very charming. <laughs> Carry um, on. There's a part where Mummy is spinning and the animation kind of smears, so it looks like her head isn't attached to her body. Um, yes. <laughs> which I was like, mm, okay, 
I see. I see what's happening there. And, and I mean, like, there's there's a lot of juicy nuggets of, like, callback. If you watch the main series, the first hundred and some odd minutes are absolutely, like, a callback paradise, um, which is really neat. I think that's actually really neat because it barely almost gives away the plot mm-hmm. if you're really keen viewer but like it's just enough to keep you hooked and it's really well done so that was that was actually my question because even before i saw the movie the first time i knew about the ending so it was definitely my question does this really work as a mystery plot is it even supposed to and alex you have in the notes that it's definitely more horror film than i was gonna else. say yeah i was rewatching it this time and i was sitting there kind of appreciating the fact that this is a horror narrative but the horror kind of uniquely comes from juxtaposing what you are seeing versus what you know which again has that great you know the fan fiction energy to it like yeah there's things like you know you will catch that bit in the dance animation where mommy's head seems to not be attached or you will see you know that bit where they're having lunch and someone's made little cakes or whatever shaped like the soul gems and Cube eats one of them and it's like how cute except it's not cute because you the audience know And it's like, and they know that you know, and you know that they know you know. So it's like this great sort of eerie conversation (laughs) that builds up this unsettling air for the whole, like, uh, first act. It's kind of like a locked room mystery in a really interesting way. Because, like, there is this huge horror element of, like, something is off. And and, and I really actually like that the movie never lets up on the something is off, can't you feel it vibe, but it's kind of like a big locked room mystery until it isn't and until the door gets unlocked and you realize, oh, mystery is us. Mm. And and like (laughs) even, I mean, even that twist, I'll admit that twist got me this time. I knew what was going to happen and I was still like, for real, (laughs) Orobuchi? It's honestly really cool. Like, as a, I mean... Which twist? The real twist or the bullshit twist? (laughs) Because there's two. The really, the good, the really good twist, not the BS one. The good one where where Orobuchi sat down and took out his little notebook and was like, I'ma do it right for the fans. No more messing with them. I'ma hurt a young woman and this time I'll have a point. (laughs) unlike the other times that's right this is a call-out podcast <laughs> anyway yeah, no, no like the real the real twist is really good and it's beautiful it's this beautiful sprawling incredibly like filmic scene and that's one of the strengths of this movie is like it is animated for sure but like it feels filmic there's some beautiful cinematography there's really good shots there's really good angles and like I love that about this. I love that even, gosh, eight years later, that the movie still resonates as this really beautiful piece of cinematography. It's excellent. I will say, speaking of call-out posts, I need to take a minute to get up on my soapbox and say, my God, this movie is really just Shaft chomping Ikuhara's flavor. (laughs) Because this movie wants to be Adolescence of Utena, the movie that looked like an au retelling and then turned out to be a sequel so bad that it actively hurts <laughs> so i don't know i'll say for me i don't know enough about ikuhara because i've never watched anything by him yes them. we're gonna fix that someday don't worry <laughs> i've never i've never seen utana i've never seen what's the one with the butt balls <laughs> sorry <Sarazama. laughs> love that i could just she's say not that. wrong she's not wrong <laughs> and then is it is it penguin drum is another one uh-huh oh and, and then yuri kumara uh, uh, i think you mean yuri bear storm oh god <laughs> no tokyo pop why why did you go with that manga title why does anyone translate it like that uh-huh. but like I, I i i believe you on that ikuhara thing I'll well it's your judgment it's it's very it's doing its own thing and part of part of me is just being pedantic but it to, to a certain extent, it does have that same structure of adolescence has confused people for years of like, is this an AU that got to be gayer? Is it a sequel? It's the latter. But it, Utena is also maybe one of the most famous works in all of fiction to reference Herman Hesse and his novel Demian. And so you can't just lift a quote from Demian Urobuchi and have it not be an Utena reference, which is the whole motif yeah. about if a chick cannot crack its shell 
it'll die without being born thing. That's oh, okay, a, okay, that's okay, the okay. biggest, biggest central motif of the original Utena. So like. <laughs> that's really fascinating because I didn't know that. And that, that kind of does contextualize a lot of things. And granted, like, I know all art, not, you know, people always say nothing is original, right? And I mean, yeah, everything yeah. is inspired by something, but that actually kind of is interesting that they may be kind of like, we're definitely inspired by Adolescence of Utena. I mean, you're kind of at a stage where you sort of, this is not universally true, of course, but you I feel like to a certain extent, you sort of can't make a deconstructive or dark magical girl show and you certainly can't make a sapphic magical girl show without paying at least a little bit of change to Utena kind of like nodding to your elders as you go past like saying hello to those who went before because it was so formative and question is Utena gay yes (laughs) Utena's quite gay they don't kiss until the movie. Would they kiss? It's like it's like the beautiful it's like the beautiful reflection where this movie is only extremely explicitly gay but in a hateful horrible way whereas Utena yeah. the movie is is sub Utena the series is subtexty because it's 1996 and it aired on primetime TV and the movie's in a theater so it gets to be loudly gay on screen as much as possible. Okay, see so now you said that and I think we're into the like all right, let's get into it section because like, Yeah, now we got to do the thing. Yeah, cuz this movie is homophobic. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Before we get into it being homophobic, I do want to say one more nice thing about the movie mm. at large. Oh, I guess I love, so. I love that this is a complete film that closes up the loose ends of the TV series where the mm. witches come back and are like restorative forces working alongside the magical girls. And that really closes up that unresolved tragic element of, oh, I guess this just happens and then we're doomed. Like, no, witches still have power and selfhood and sentience. And it's really good, that final battle against mm-hmm. Cutie. It's so yeah, good. I I I thought to myself as that battle was happening, like it seeing seeing Sayaka come back, like my sweet child Sayaka come back and use her witch um is really interesting. Like and I love that she's able to like snatch that witch out of the law of cycles and harness that power. Right, but like it's also interesting seeing her kind of almost as a Valkyrie. Yeah, Monica. yeah. Like she's 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 Monica's shield. Like she's here with a purpose, and like she was charged specifically with retaining Monica's memories. Like that's one of the big things about Sayaka, and it's interesting seeing her, the girl who so desperately in the original main series wanted to be that for Monica. It's so beautiful to see that she comes back because she gets she wants to protect her friend she loves her friend so immensely and is so grateful for the fact that her friend loves her and she comes back and she harnesses this ability this darkness that the series you know shows in the depicts in the form of witches she harnesses octavia and helps her friend it's so sweet it made me cry <laughs> and she tells kyoko that that her one regret was leaving her behind and it's really gay. yes and they hold they hands start. in the battle and i'm like this is fan service but it's fan service for me <laughs> they they stop short they stop short of these two young women kissing uh-huh. like they are it is this deeply beautifully romantic moment um and it's it's also really powerful because like their positions are flipped, right? Like Sayaka is saving Kyoko this time instead of Kyoko ultimately being the one who like kind of saves Sayaka. It's really good. Uh, <laughs> it's so good. It feels sort of facetious, but I also love how much, how it's just like how much this show doesn't give a sh- how much this movie rather doesn't give a shit about violin boy they're just like ah he's just a crappy 14 year old crappy boyfriend whatever and sayaka's like i'm over him he sucks and hitomi's like oh he sucks and i'm feeling neglected i'm like hey <laughs> i love that we never see him we just hear him mm-hmm. as a disembodied voice and it's just great like on the one hand it kind of feel i don't know like sayaka died for this guy basically so on one hand it feels like it's kind of invalidating that on the other it's extremely funny um that sayaka's just like ah whatever you know and then you know ends up with her girlfriend (laughs) more power to her Uh uh-huh love it it. okay highest highs lowest lows this movie's fucking homophobic at the end (laughs) it's it i 
y'all y'all i don't i don't even know what to say other than like it is incredibly painful to me that this movie's message ultimately is if you love a woman enough the only thing you deserve is punishment because you're greedy and you're selfish and your desire is twisted and oh yeah what you deserve is death imagery and to ultimately potentially trigger die by suicide it's really gross (laughs) that this movie did this and I don't think I had that language at the time when I saw it but eight years later I was I was heartbroken by the fact that this movie really wants you to remember it's made for men it's not made for a queer audience it's not made for women who love women for anyone who is in a queer relationship it's made for cis men and that's the suffering is made for cis men it really like it comes so close literally you can, and I don't know that I can 100% blame Urobochi for this one either, because it feels so strongly. Like, I can picture him in a room, writing out the script, and then, and like, several arms-wearing suits, representing, like, the executives, come in and grab his wrist and are like, no, no, keep writing. We have to make more money off this. Like, you can hit, you hit, like, one hour and 35 minutes and you can literally hit pause, unplug your computer and throw it out the window into the ocean and the movie feels done. Like, it's building up so obviously to a conclusion and a finale and then it's like, oh, oops, screwed. Like, we're doing something else now. Quick, sequel hook, vindictive, uh, she's the devil. Like, it feels so tacked on. And it's extremely bizarre from a writing perspective as well as, you know, everything else. (laughs) This is the part where we unpin that pin and I tell you about the quotes from the movie brochure. So I'm reading... I am reading from a from a fan translation, but I did have Chiaki uh, check it over against the original text, which we will include in the show notes. So this should be solid. Uh, So, if I may put on my reading glasses... What kind of story did you think up first, Urobuchi? From the start, the idea was Homura has become a witch and the story takes place inside her barrier. But at the time, I wanted to end the story with Madoka taking Homura away with her. So I thought the story would end this time for real. He laughs. But both Iwakami-san and Shinbo-san were like, no, we want the story to keep going after this and wouldn't approve my script. So then when I was getting really worried, Shinbo-san was like, might as well just make Madoka and Homura into enemies. And the suggestion was basically the breakthrough. I really agreed that Homura might be plausible as Madoka's equal opposite. So the plot came together based on the concept of Madoka and Homura becoming enemies. How do you feel about your work as screenplay writer in creating the new continuation to Madoka Magica for Rebellion? Orobuchi. It was hard. At this point in time... uh. It, it seems like another time now, but I remember having a tough time working on it. Back during the TV series, Iwakami-san and Shimbo-san had this kind of Magica, Madoka Magica ought to be like this vision going on. At this point, I really felt like the series didn't just belong to me anymore. How do you want the fans to enjoy Rebellion? Honestly, I think some will... This translation says beautify. I have to wonder if that means beatify, given the religious... <laughs> implications well i I, guess I would say a better phrase would be like some will uplift it gotcha like, so, so some will uplift it and some will reject it completely these days static characters who don't change are popular and if characters ever change even a little bit then there'll be people who call that out of character and get angry in this movie homer grows and she changes in the end i'm a little worried as to whether people will accept a character like her if they'll think she's ooc or that she's evolved I'll, I'll be happy if people accept that Madoka Magica is the kind of drama where characters grow and change like this, but that ups, that's up to the viewers to decide. Hey, Bri? Yeah? I want to fight Urobuchi in a 7-Eleven parking lot. I'll bring a baseball bat. <laughs> like, I... But, <laughs> and, old man out of knees. and, and there, there, are two, there are two wolves inside of me, listeners. There are two wolves. One of them is like, yeah, he's actually quite right. Because what happened was that you had two camps. Rebellion can do no wrong, and Rebellion did all wrong. And, like, this was localized even to, like, your anime fan, your anime club that saw it was probably split on this. I know mine was. Mm-hmm. Um, like, we got into vicious nerd arguments over Little Caesar's Pizza. Um, but Aww. also, 
I think where this falls apart for me and where the other wolf is, is like, but you wrote it. <laughs> Urobuchi, you wrote this. It's not just that, though. It's it's such a straw man, because if even if we chop off the last 20 minutes, Homura does grow and change during the rest of the movie. She has an arc where she goes from being this incredibly closed off, self-sacrificial character who doesn't think she can rely on anybody else and is prepared to commit essentially suicide into eternal m- martyrdom and suffering for, for her love for Madoka in like this saintly way and the other girls help her realize that community is what she needs and that she's not alone and that they will help her if she reaches out to them that is an arc that is and it's a really good one too because like again like if you're going to continue the series i was sort of thinking what were they going to do with it but of course homura is kind of the protagonist of the series in a way, but we don't really get to see that because she's always moving in the background and operating on different timelines and stuff that we don't get to see except in flashbacks. So having this movie be about Homura and have her be the hero, but also have her be saved, have her be the one who's rescued for a change is a really beautiful like switcheroo of the sort of status quo of the series. And I think a beautiful way to cap it off. Um, And then they're all, yeah. And then, so yeah, it's an arc, it's done. And and then and then there is this stuck on with craft glue at the end. <laughs> yeah, and I I mean like okay, I need y'all to roll with me through this analogy. I had a weird moment where during this during Homura's fall, as it were, because like this movie is dripping with Christian allegory, which really is weird considering that the original series was not. It gets very um, it's a super weird change. It's weird, but during her fall, like I what came to mind was I'm sorry, I have to get this out. What came to mind was Call Me by Your Name by Lil Nas <laughs> where wherein he like does this arc better because what he does is he embraces the fact that if society is going to see me as this if my actions are going to be perceived as being scare quotes evil i'm fully going to embrace it and do chaotic reckless good um whereas this movie punishes homura and is like oh okay you had an arc but like no 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 (laughs) no 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 Mm -mm. i think a lot of I think a lot of people at this point, it has reached the stage of mimesis where people kind of hear about the ending without hearing, without actually seeing the film proper. And they're like, in theory, I love this ending, which, uh, spoiler alert, listeners at home, I do have a nendoroid of gay Satan, (laughs) as I call her, because you find a nendoroid for under $20 and you buy it and she's beautiful and I love and support her. And actually, one of the contributors of our on our site, Tony, they wrote an absolutely beautiful um, article about Devil Homura as this kind of really well-worded and I think much, much kinder than this article deserves um, sort of reclamation of her character as a pushback against the entire system at all that that there shouldn't even be a system where these girls have to suffer all their lives before they're saved. And maybe we should just tear it all down and that would be good. And I would be interested if that's where the, I thought the third movie was going, but here's the thing. I don't think that this is a, a reclamatory queer satanic character in the way that queer gay, uh, like queer devil imagery often is because it's so, hell housey like she's cackling evilly as she transforms she's holding madoka even as she's crying out that it hurts she she touches madoka in a really uncomfortable way that doesn't feel good and reclaimy like Mm -hmm. i just gotta throw that out there it doesn't that the sexualization of homer does not feel powerful yeah like because she's no it feels predatory this is a predatory lesbian yeah yeah like what I felt like was it made me think of like in the 1950s and 60s when you would have like these cautionary novels about you know girls that like girls because that's like bad. Satan is a lesbian and like yeah and like the punishment would be is like right and the punishment would be is like your friend Sarah in that novel would die of some sort of sickness because like she was sad I guess because the only right punishment if you are queer and particularly in and I use Western society and scare coats because unfortunately the Nazis took that from us. 
is the punishment in Western society is that you die if you like women. And we're not quite past that point in a lot of countries where that's not a true thing. We are certainly not to that point where a cishet dude, as far as I know, should be writing a story about this fraught issue. Perhaps not, yeah. it, It just hits really weird knowing that, like, Monica, like, you know, she, she, in episode 12, she ascends and, like, basically becomes enlightened and is able to, through the law of cycles, through her wish, through her immense kindness, is able to save millions of girls um and we talked about that and i feel very fraught about that still because of the implications but she's able to do this great ultimately a great good and the fact that homura who is someone who has tried to do good and you know through becoming singularly focused on her task kind of lost a lot her punishment is not kindness her punishment is you're bad and you're bad why because you like a girl and you wanted to do good and it, and and to a great degree that's an oversimplification because there is a lot at play but that part of it really bothered me this watch i did have someone try quite sincerely i think to argue that this was not an example of demonizing homosexuality in fiction and i had to be like my friend it is quite, it's the most literal version of demonizing homosexuality I think I've ever seen. Like, she says she loves a girl and she turns into the devil. Like, I mean, Homer Kimmy literally becomes Homura Morningstar. Like, the devil herself. Like, it is. It, she literally, her, I mean, I... The- <laughs> So, like, the movie does have foreshadowing early on about the fine line between love and, you know, warping, like, neurotic obsession with the Hitomi dream sequence early on. I see what you've done, movie. But the thing is that you haven't earned this and you haven't thought about the additional implications of putting these themes on a queer story specifically. Yeah. And, like, I, yeah got a lot of complicated queer feelings about this one y'all because like the thing mm-hmm. that gets my goat the most is that it, it just it does homer a dirty as a character honestly because like it potentially does. potentially um you know Homura is sick of being a martyr and sick of saving other people and actually she wants to be selfish and shitty for a change and have Madoka all to herself that would be an interesting arc potentially but it's not the arc that the movie is building up to again it just feels like it tacks it on at the end for this you know potentially the fun concept of ooh, what if they were enemies but they're not enemies though what we have is Madoka has no memories. She has no agency. It is just Madoka being a normal girl, supposedly, and Homura keeping her in a gilded cage, basically. They're not enemies. They're not rivals. They're not equals to each other. It's Homura being controlling and shitty and Madoka not being able to do anything about it. That's not an interesting dynamic, you know? Well, and, 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 and it's a shame because the interesting elements are there. Like, I was really in particularly struck by that kind of final scene between Monica and Homura, where Monica starts to remember, and she's like, wait, I'm not supposed to be here. Something mm-hmm. is wrong. And, like, her godhood starts to emerge again, and Homura clamps down on mm-hmm. it, viciously clamps down on it, and is like, no, you're exactly where you need to be here with me in a place where we can belong and be together and these things that hurt us don't have to come out and that is a very powerful narrative but what happens between homura ascending and i and i will say ascending into witchdom and that moment really is not the deconstruction i think that it thinks it is (laughs) it just kind of punishes it punishes homura and 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 I mean, like, Homer, Homer has essentially, like, created this lotus eater machine where, like, all the girls are trapped. But instead of trying to show that sympathetically as this being a product of Homer's, like, trauma, and not, you know, by all means, I'm not justifying, you know, trauma makes people do things and we are still responsible for the things that we do to hurt others. 
But instead of saying like, this is Homer's trauma and kind of laying the blame on the incubators for creating a system in which they use the bodies of young girls to power the world, it says Homer's bad. And there's no redemption for people who are bad and traumatized. Even with what I mentioned before with the um, the Hitomi foreshadowing, even that is sort of addressed and wrapped up before the last 20 minutes because you have that really haunting scene in the in the flower field where that same that same Blu-ray pamphlet mentions that there are essentially three Madokas in this movie and you know the the godhood one, the normal one and the one who's lost her her memory and it that scene so powerfully highlights that even if the other girls are stuck here this is a maze homer has made to torment herself it is a maze for her because she convinces it it, you know her own inner demons convince her that she's been wrong this whole time and actually maroka didn't want to be sacrificed homer's actions are hurting her so she needs to change which is what pushes her over the edge into becoming a witch and almost sacrificing herself forever like that that is where the obsession thing comes back around and gets addressed and then the other girls have to be like no you can't just decide what she wants we're going to help you meet her the real her not the her in your head well and, and sayaka delivers like a wham line she's like you can't do this like this is not your right. And that's when like that really good action like kicks in inside. Cause like, no, no, I'm not letting you do this. Like mm-mm. you need to do something that you're not going to regret. And Saika, of course is speaking from the heart as a witch and as a girl who did something she regrets. And she's like, no, you, you can't, you can't do this because you're in pain. Like I understand and see your pain, but that can't, you can't let that, be how you hurt her and it's a really powerful moment and then you know that final confrontation in you know like before the the sequel hook portion of the movie it's really powerful because as you kind of point out yeah like you strip back all of the magic and all of the multiple timelines and all of the ascending to godhood and it's a story about a bunch of friends gathering together to help someone not commit suicide and not self-harm and i you know i I really enjoyed that final scene because it is so lush and so bombastic and so artsy and so shafty and so you know all the imagery is there and they're fighting this army and it's like it's it's kind of like gives a visual to the emotionality of what it feels like to be in that situation it's like yeah homura is and the other thing as well like the i love all the symbolism of homura's witch form and especially the bit she has that ribbon on her back that forms hands that are reaching out and like dragging the ground behind her trying to stop herself from doing what she's gonna do so it's even like those hands oh uh, yes that imagery is so good and the most tender queerest appendage <laughs> But just like that whole scene, yeah, it's so gorgeous and so powerful because it's, yeah, it's a bunch of friends saying, no, listen, we know that in the previous 12 episodes, we didn't see your suffering. We couldn't understand it. But now we do. We've come back to help you. And we've come back to reunite you with your girlfriend. And it's really sweet and powerful and emotional. And then she becomes the devil. I cannot stress this enough. And, and it's it's a shame because like, and I, I bandied this about in our first two parts. My read as an adult of the series is as a series that the horror of it is that there is no bodily autonomy for these young women. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, like that's mm-hmm. the real horror. The horror isn't mommy getting her head bit off or Sayaka dying or any of that. The horror is, is that these young women have no control of their bodies. And that's depicted through the soul gems and the fact that they're, they can't be away from them, you know, through the transformation into a monster. And, like, Rebellion could have been this really beautiful trauma narrative about how there is healing for everyone and how you don't have to go at it alone and how you can actually make it through to the other side. And they just... I don't know... And I don't, I don't mean this rudely. Men are great. They're wonderful. Necessary. But I don't know if men, if cis men at this time, and to some degree today, understand what it is to write a trauma narrative about a young woman. I don't, I don't think they do. And I don't think they understand the horrors of being an AFAB teenager 
dealing with having no bodily autonomy at all. I mean, yeah, that's a it's a tricky thing for sure. Like I mm-hmm. I never want to say as a, as a golden rule, oh, you can't write about an experience unless you've had it yourself. Because I believe in, you know, humanity's capacity for empathy, especially through something like writing where you can explore, you know, being people you've never been and will never be. But on some level, yeah, I also agree. There is a level of like, you know, it becomes, it goes out of nuance and into schlock horror real quickly with stuff like this, especially when, yeah, you're taking what could, you know, you're dealing with this kind of dicey subject and you start getting things like, oh, we need a sequel hook. Oh, it would be cool if we could sell merchandise of uh, a devil Homura to match goddess Madoka. Oh, that would be re- like yet you get those external influences, and it just the nuance goes. <laughs> right. And I, mm-hmm. I just think about like how I just think about just the simple contrast between like how Madoka is dressed at the end of the original series and how Homura is dressed in this movie. And what is her punishment? It's a black dress that basically exposes her navel mm-hmm. and her sternum and her cleavage. Which is incredibly, and I mean, I think the intent is to be uncomfortable. I don't, I don't think you're supposed to side with Homer, but the movie kind of wants you to side with Homer and think that like this is okay. And I like, don't know, I don't know, because again, the evil cackling. I think this is yeah. fully a look at the evil lesbian. Aren't you shocked? Moment. Yeah, and and like the fact that she's turned into an evil lesbian, the sexualization of her outfit, the like I said earlier, the way she touches Monica, it's very, even when she's talking to Sayaka, she does this thing with her hands and it made me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just the way she's touching herself and she's, mind you, I watched the dub for consistency and like, she's like, she's like, oh, it was, I cried. It was, the dub is on point. The dub is really good. Um, the dub for Monica is really, really well done. They all sound like young teenage girls which Ooh. credit but like the way the kind of lasciviousness about homer just i don't like i said i think i think cis men have written a lot of really powerful narratives there are a lot of male authors that i really like who write very powerful stories i don't necessarily know if this was a story that middle-aged Ginnarabuchi was the right person to tell necessarily, because it does just make Homura, it, it, it's a failing on her character and it hurts so much. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, like talking, you know, it always comes back to Ikuhara who is a cis man and uh, who has never publicly come out as queer but uh also he he tends to seek out women to work with on his projects and i feel like that's important and also you know we talk we keep coming back to it but nuance is that lack of nuance that that and that understanding is the biggest the lion's share of what makes this ending not work because we've all mentioned like, oh yeah, sure. Homer turning into like a a reclamatory Satan figure that could work on paper, but, or you might say, well, but how is this homophobic? Because you have that, that touch on that, that Kyosaya moment. And it's, well, it's because you've had, you have one pure emotional handholding scene and one character who turns into the devil because she specifically voices her attraction in terms of desire not just love or devotion and i and i think at the end of the day like i said earlier monica's a show that was made for a male audience monica is not a shoujo anime it's a seinen and that automatically unfortunately means that any yuri and mind you like i've written fic for this show i see a lot of yuri potential but i think any genuine yuri is pandering towards a male audience it's this is not yuri for even a sapphic audience it is girls touching girls in like the purest way for men unless of course they're turning into the devil and wearing a sexy dress yeah (laughs) and and then like it's a reminder of like you can like girls but not too much Mm. because if you Mm. do your punishment is that you have to live out that punishment until the universe assume, assumably burns up, which, which is what her witch does, right? Which is exactly what her witch is kind of cursed to do. Do we want to touch on that epilogue? Because it's really upsetting. 
So I had never seen it until today. Ooh. Oof. So it's fresh. Like, are, are, we, are we talking about the post-credits epilogue? Yes. yes. Yeah, I had never seen it until today. Oh, it's... Uh, it, it, it's... Uh, yeah, so for those of you at home who might also have min- missed it, or you haven't watched the movie in a while, uh, it's Homura dancing on that, that cliff where she had her last conversation with the Madoka in her head. She, um... She, she beats the shit out of Kube, which is very satisfying, and then just f- pitches herself off a cliff. And then it cuts to black very sharply and yeah. says, Finn. I was going to say, it lists a bunch of different linguistic ways to say the end. And yeah. And and in, like right before that happens, you see, as Wikipedia describes, a badly beaten and mentally scarred Kube. <laughs> Which, I don't which know was a little that. treat for me. Well, and but you, it, 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 it just like this ending made me angry, and y'all know I don't get angry very often. Mm. No, you're easily the nicest member of the team. <laughs> it it genuinely made me angry because, like Homer, a morning star here who's ascended to Lucifer levels of villainy. They have one last punishment for her, and that is, and we don't we don't know if she's coming back in the fourth movie. Uh, we got a thirty four second trailer that did not tell a lot. <laughs> they have to bring her back because this series is a marketing machine now. I mean, this movie might as well have been Puella Maga- Magai homra magica this movie if and if they had named it that it would have given away way too much much like um miss satomi who was predicting the end of the world and was right <laughs> if they had named it after homra it would have given away the entire plot but like it's so cruel it's to her even in the end yeah i don't yeah which again given all of that poetic stuff we just said about how the you know, half an hour ago at this point, the climax of the movie can be read as an allegory for protecting your friend from committing suicide. It's just this unnecessary gut punch that means kind of none of that mattered. Yeah. I think that's what made me angry was I was like, well, then what was this movie's point? (laughs) And right. Maybe you can say, oh, well, we don't know that she died, but then why have that scene at all? Right. I mean, because she, she, falls off a cliff and worse she falls off holding her soul gym mm-hmm. like and 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 we know that in series in this world soul gyms are literally a tangible faberge egg form of your soul so like yes her her, her beautifully corrupted soul <laughs> at this point who has its own special uh extra gothic soul gem container because you know yeah. merchandise <laughs> buy it at your local comic know, like the the thing honestly like i look at devil homer's design i'm like did you just make this whole ending happen so you could sell like companion figures to all of the like goddess madaka merch you already had like i mean i mean I but just... like i had that figure though i had that companion figure right and and like all of the merch they made it's up they they match up together yeah and that does I did mention of... my devil, my devil Homer Nendo, didn't I? Yes, yeah. <laughs> like, I did think of it as well because, like, like yes, it works, but and but it's still, it's just, it's yeah, the whole ending. It feels like such an insidious little cynical marketing ploy, which again is particularly infuriating because here we are in the year of our goddess Madoka, twenty twenty one, and we have only just gotten an announcement for the sequel, which I thought was going to be like just around the corner. I was like, all right, so you've teased us with all of this. You've tormented us. You've torn at our heartstrings. Uh, all right. Yes. I have cash in my hand already. Where do I book a tickets for the third movie? And then it didn't happen. <laughs> it just didn't happen. But isn't, isn't, isn't that the most insidious thing of all? And like warning it's Mercedes capitalism quarter. <laughs> isn't that the most <laughs> insidious thing of it all? Is that like, they created this movie that really emotionally manipulates the mm-hmm. viewer really successfully. I would argue because the fact that we're talking about this movie eight years later and we have the same amount of passion, if not more from when we watched it says a lot, right? 
you have this movie that emotionally manipulates you and then you want to go out and buy merch (laughs) of like this poor sapphic teenage girl who just like literally got yeeted (laughs) off of a cliff well that's that's the and it's that's the terrible thing is that like I would not be so cranky about this ending if the previous twelve episodes had not been so fantastic, and indeed if the previous yeah. you know hour and a half of the film had not also gotten me emotionally invested. Like yes, I'm hooked in, and I would you know if this had just been kind of like a crappy, mediocre kind of you know standalone thing, I would be like oh oh yeah, that's that one where she turns into gay Satan at the end. Uh, you know, Urobochi wants what Montero has, and we would just like I would leave it at that. But it's because I care. It's because I care that I'm so angry. <laughs> it's like it stings so hard because I'm emotionally invested. And and I mean like this is an award winning film. Like this 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 film won awards for its creation like it's a good film but there is something so insidious when you think about like even in 2013 if you were a girl who liked a girl like that this kind of punishment could be meted out and that you could that and that like I don't know I I have such big feelings that I'm not articulating them well at this moment because it's just there's just so much at play Mm -hmm. right there's just so much at play I Um, think what's yeah and I think what stings about it is that this ending is basically the almost parodic um it, it, it is the the almost parodic distillation of what people who Madoka didn't work for accuse it of being, which is suffering porn. This ending is uncut suffering porn. Yeah. For like There is no defending 20, it. For like 24 straight minutes for the length of a super cub episode. <laughs> it I mean, like you just watch Homura descend into this horrific madness. And it's painful. And, like, there is no redemption for her. And, like, this traumatized girl is left with, what does she have to do? She has to become the evil that was dealt to her. And if I see one more smug think piece about how Homura was always a bad, selfish character, even back in the series, I'm going to put my boot up somebody's ass. <laughs> yeah, dude, my foot's going to join you. It's going to be right next to you. Because because that's the thing. That's And that's what's ultimately soul-crushing, right, is Homura wasn't a bad character she wasn't even a character that set out with ill intent she loves her friend and whether you want to read much like any relationship whether you want to read that platonically or romantically is up to you i choose to read it romantically of course but like she loves Monica. she loves her and she knows what it means to be a magical girl she understands that like bad things have happened to Monica, and she desperately in a very childlike way, wants to prevent that from happening. And the fact that people perceive her as, well, she was always bad. I hate that. And I hate it when people say that about people in real life, because like news alert, you can't tell when someone who's bad is always bad. That's why it hurts when that is a reveal, right? Like when we find out that a character we love is actually bad, it's not that they've been bad all along. It's that something caused them to be bad. And so I'm kind of with you on that. Like when people are like, oh, Homer was always bad. Okay, like Reddit user. Like, <laughs> See, like I don't know, like, go, go play Fortnite or whatever y'all do. As an addition to that, like saying Homer was always bad kind of implies that like this finale had been planned since the beginning, which as we now know, thanks to those blurry interviews, it absolutely was not. So... There is no room for the interpretation at all. And it just, and the series, and the series is about hope and love. And now it's just not anymore. And so it just. And it makes, it makes it so smug because that there's also a quote in that interview, by the way, about how all the, the nightmares are just like the kind of monsters Homer wishes they could have been fighting. Like they're a fantasy of hers. And I'm like, yes, fuck you. This girl is allowed to think, gosh, I wish I could just tackle the emotional difficulties as metaphors that my friends are facing and help them become better people. Fuck you. She's allowed to do that. Well, and I just, I think about like the nature of Homu Lily 
um, Homer's witch form, which like there's a lot, there's a lot happening. We could talk about the spider lilies and the fact that spider lilies are an inherently toxic plant that also symbolize death, which says a lot that they chose that for her. We can talk about how she's the nutcracker witch and like her whole duty was to crack nuts and without a duty, like all that's left is I guess she becomes a sad woman from a Victorian novel and dies. Like it, it's a real disservice. It's a real disservice. Um, it is. Yeah. I don't like it's, it. I think I don't like it. I mean, I test the word I want to associate with this ending is, as we touched on before, it's disappointment. Like it's anger. I'm not going to go all, you know, like white parent and be like, I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. I am angry. But I'm also <laughs> profoundly disappointed because it is such a thematic, emotional letdown after everything we talked about last episode that was great about the series and about the ending of the series specifically. It's like, did any of that matter? You know, now that we've done this, as it does it, I mean, I guess it's a question for each personal viewer, but like, does this ending negate what is good about the ending of the 12 episode show? Um, I just, you know, and that's something I, I can't answer for every single person, but it's just, yeah, it's very disappointing. Again, because I care so much about, about the show, excuse me. And it's come to this point where I'm just cranky with it and it's disappointing. It's mm-hmm. just, it's sad. Yeah, my, my big question coming back to watch this um, in light of the sequel announcement was, does a sequel being actively announced and in the works change my feelings of disappointment about Rebellion? And the answer is no, I'm still no, pissed. No, yeah. Because, yeah. well, that's the thing, because yeah. a sequel is only inevitably going to drag this conflict out more, if not introduce new conflict that we have to deal with. So, oh. eh. Alex, why did you say that? I heard the monkeys talk. Well, just, that's why I don't like. No. That's why I'm always intensely wary of sequels and spin-offs and continuation movies because involving these characters in more story means more conflict, which can, in cases like this, mean pulling the rug out from underneath these characters and sending them in very disappointing directions in the name of generating more content and more conflict. I guess uh, we probably should wrap it up. It's the, the by the time we cut the technical difficulties we have, we should be at about an hour. Um, so I guess last thoughts, and also, would you recommend people watch this movie without the last twenty minutes, or with the last twenty minutes if they hate themselves? <laughs> um, you know what? Sure. I mean, I think it's one of those things that, like, like I mean, if I'm feeling petty, I will say yes. Just watch the show. Don't watch the movie. Um, but I don't know. I think, you know, it's a valuable thing to say, Hey, watch the continuation movie. If you like the series and form your own opinion, because I don't know, you know, I'm disappointed with it, but I do not speak for everyone, of course. And I am, for everything I've just said, I am probably still going to go see the third movie when it turns up in cinemas because I need to know. We're going to make content about the third <laughs> movie. This don't is even now a four part series. Woohoo. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to say that, like, honestly, for all of my complaints and like, and I certainly hope it doesn't come off like I hate this movie. This movie made me cry. Like, I feel so much for it. I do think it's important to watch. I think it's important to watch, especially if you're looking to contextualize 2010's Magical Girl fandom and to really understand why people felt so polarized and really like this. And I think it's important to watch it in its entirety. I think, obviously, we've given a lot of caveats and there's some trigger warnings for this movie for sure but i i love it i love it and like i love this world i love stories where young women are centered um i think this story could be better but i do think i would recommend people to watch it um if only to understand like a snippet of what sapphic fandom in particular was like at this time i think that's really it really contextualizes a lot of what you might see memed online and it makes it a lot more fleshed out and understood. Like back in my day, we had to hike up the hill both ways and there was lesbian Satan at the top and we were grateful. <laughs> yeah. Cause I, 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 I mean, I remember a lot of people being really grateful for Homura because like this was because before she voices her desire yeah, like yeah. explicitly. And, and I mean, this was before like bubbling on Adventure Time. This was before my OTP, Korra Asami mm-hmm. on Legend of Korra. Korra. 
we hadn't had like really transparent desire of a woman wanting a woman kind of like how Yuri on ice did that without being boys love. We hadn't had that for Yuri. At least I hadn't seen it. I mean, like there's Yuri. We hadn't had that outside of the context of a show being Yuri. And I Utena was out of print when, uh, when Madoka hit big. Yeah. I, I think it's really important if you want to understand what a lot of people were feeling at that time, it's really important to watch this. Like I said, there's caveats and make your own decision. We're just three good old, anime feminist staff members talking about a movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i'm i'm fully team uh stop before the last 20 minutes but i think that your b- opinions are both good and reasonable and people can pick whichever one works for them uh, thanks Irobochi, you mad bastard you've given me so much to discuss over the years and it's good to be back <laughs> i mean and, and and I'll I, I'm genuinely looking forward to I guess next year when we can talk about the sequel that's been yeah. sitting in a drawer for six years. I'm so excited to buy merch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a bad person. I want that merch. We we all we are all in, enraptured by the lore of merch. Mm-hmm. It happens. We're all part of the, we're all part of Cubase Ultimate System. <laughs> Do you, do you think Kube created Magical Girl so he could shill items to us? Yes. <laughs> the true evil children, remember, is capitalism. Always. <laughs> All right. Well, that wraps up our three-part series. Someday next year to be four parts on Puella Magi Madoka Magica. Thank you so much for joining us. I thought we might have time to talk about the spinoffs, but no, there was too much to say about the film, which is fine. <laughs> Uh, if you liked what you heard, you can find more of this podcast by searching on SoundCloud or going to our website, www.animefeminist.com. And if you really liked what you heard, consider chucking us a dollar a month on Patreon. Every little bit really does help make a, a key, help us pay folks working on the site and contributing to the site more and to keep everything running and make sure we pay people a fair wage, which is very important to us. Uh, By the way, if you donate at five bucks a month, you can join our Discord, which is full of pretty cool, chill people. They're nice. You can also find us on social media. We are on Facebook at Anime Femme. I gotta stop saying that. We never update it. We are on Tumblr at Anime Feminist, and we are on Twitter at Anime Feminist. And until next time, Anafam, hug the gay Satan in your life and tell them that you care. Also, somebody draw Homer Montero art if it hasn't happened yet. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh.